This is Creative Mornings, a podcast showcasing the global creative community. This episode is brought to you by Monotype. For less than $10 per month, the Monotype library subscription gives creative professionals unlimited access to 10,000 premium typefaces and provides an easy, collaborative, and affordable way to explore, access, use, and share desktop and web fonts across any design environment. Learn more about the Monotype library subscription or sign up by visiting myfonts.com. Hey everyone, welcome to the Creative Mornings Podcast. This is Matt, and this week's episode pulls its talk from the 2016 Creative Mornings Summit. It took place in Austin, Texas back in November, and in brief, what happens at the summit is that Creative Mornings organizers from around the world come together to learn from each other, be inspired, and uncover new ways to make each local chapter even better. Basically, the Creative Mornings experience that you're familiar with is a byproduct of ideas, brainstorming, and positivity that is the summit. The talk we're revisiting this week was the finale to last year's summit, and it was given by Alan Graham, the co-founder and visionary behind Mobile Loaves and Fishes and Community First. Both organizations serve goodness and tackle the issue of poverty, homelessness, housing, and social justice through a community-first approach. And Creative Mornings was something that Alan was completely unfamiliar with. No, not at all. Zero. Yeah. So how did this come about for you guys? Gosh, Matt, um... I wish I could tell you precisely. I, I just think that uh, a group of Creative Mornings people heard me talk somewhere and uh, and then came out for a tour. And I think Creative Mornings, they do these annual international get-togethers, and this one happened to be uh, this year. And they decided to, to hold the culmination of this event out here at our Community First uh, Amphitheater, which seats about 500 people. In your talk, Alan, you give us the mission behind Mobile Loaves and Fishes and Community First. But before we get to that, I wanted to get a little bit more of your history for our listeners and for myself on how this whole concept came about. You know, the story actually goes way, way back uh, uh, to my mom, who died in 1989. But uh, my mother suffered profoundly uh, from some mental health issues. And uh, the only memory that I have of my mom and dad uh, married and living under the same roof was back in um, probably 1959, 1960, when I was four years old. And my mom was having a pretty serious mental health breakdown, was standing on her bed with a knife in her hands, threatening my father. That's what I remember. And then the next thing I know, my mom's in the, the hospital. And she was there for a, a, a year period of time that time. She'd been hospitalized a number of times over the course of her adult life. And my father uh, divorced her while she was uh, in the hospital that first time and unleashed a custody battle for me and my brothers that my mother ultimately won because she had a, a great mom and dad that really cared for her and cared for us and didn't want her stripped of her you know, maternal rights. Sometime in that time frame, and I can't remember when, she had a vision of a saint uh, that came to her and encouraged her uh, to become Roman Catholic. Really? And uh, Yeah. And when she 
became Roman Catholic. She took me and my three brothers uh, along with her, and you know, thus began my journey as a as a Roman Catholic that I abandoned pretty hard as a teenager and as a young adult. Uh, yeah, I mean, but uh, who, who doesn't abandon their religion at that age? Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. And so if you abandoned it, when, at what point did you come back? When I met my wife, Tricia, back in 1980, 81, uh, she was Roman Catholic. And the only way that I was ever going to marry that woman was to do so in the church. And, uh, right. okay. and even though I married her in the church, I did it, you know, reluctantly, uh, basically because I, I, I had to do it. And then uh, as we started having children in the late 80s and the early 90s, it, it became evident that we could start taking the kids to church and get the buffet of moral and ethical values that you want to instill in your children. And I decided that if I was going to do this, I, I at least wanted to intellectually study what the church was all about. Uh, because even though I was raised that way, uh, I wasn't catechized uh, very meaningfully. And um, I started developing a very, you know, fun intellectual relationship with Jesus uh, through the church. I uh, started studying the history of the church, uh, started studying the apostles and the early church fathers. I, I, you know, I just wanted to know what was going on in the, the train wreck that we call our Christian faith. And then in 1996, uh, I was invited to go on a men's retreat at my church, uh, given by men for men. Okay. That had I known, Matt, at the time that I was going to a place where men were going to hold hands with men and, and pray and, God forbid, hug it out, uh, I, I'd have never gone. But uh, the whole deal turned into exactly that. And for a couple hours, I was just phenomenally uncomfortable in that situation. But then these men began to positively wear on me that were unfolding their lives and their transformation. And by the end of this 30-hour retreat, uh, I was just this intellectual relationship that I had with Christ dropped a complete floor uh, from my brain into my heart. And it, it was at that moment that I began a philosophy that I called Just Say Yes. God, what, what do you want me to do? Uh, and I want to go do that. And that, that's really what led you know, to the idea of mobilizing fishes, going out and feeding the most despised outcasts in our community. And these successive Just Say Yes moments led to the creation of what we think is a new movement here in the United States called Community First. And what was it like getting this off the ground? How did it become uh, a reality? When I finally got the courage to share the idea with Tricia, and she, having been married uh, at that time for 14 years to a serial entrepreneur, just looked at me and said, oh my God, here we go again. <laughs> <laughs> And, and the idea was pretty simple. Let's go out and buy a $1,500, you know, catering truck uh, that some of us uh, affectionately call a roach coach. <laughs> Dust it off, put a little tender loving care into it. Let's go feed the homeless. We didn't know what we were doing, brother. But when I ran it by uh, one of my co-founder brothers, uh, Bruce Agnes, uh, he goes, 
oh, that's awesome. I'm in. I'll put 500 in. And I said, well, I'll put 500 bucks in. And Matt, within about 60 days, we were looking for 1,500. 25,000 came our way. Wow. And yeah. And it's been nothing but uphill ever since. And with that, I'll let you have his talk. Here's Alan Graham in Austin, Texas, speaking to over 200 Creative Mornings organizers from over 80 different cities around the world. And stick around for more from our conversation at the end. Enjoy. A lot of what I'm going to talk about this morning is what happens when creativity collides with vision. And um, I appreciate uh, being recognized uh, as the visionary, but in reality... Uh, it's a lot simpler uh, than that. Uh, there's so much more uh, to vision. But I want to begin uh, with a story that began about 34 years ago in Denver, Colorado. It was April, uh, a late snow, uh, very cold outside, inside of an apartment complex, uh, was now a friend of mine a gang member of a Mexican gang, had been in and out of prison uh, multiple times. If you ever got to meet this beautiful human being, he's tattooed from head to toe, primarily with tattoos that he acquired while he was in prison. He and his wife were in this apartment. And a knock comes on the door, and they go out, she does, and answers the door, and there's nobody at the door. But she looks down on the deck of the apartment complex, which was covered in snow, and laying in the snow is a five-day-old little baby in a diaper. And they took this baby in, and they began to love on this little child. They named this child Gordy. When Gordy was about five years old, they began to really recognize that there was something wrong uh, with Gordy, and they began to have him uh, tested. So it turns out that uh, Gordy would never, ever exceed the mentality of a seven-year-old. Fast forward, uh, when Gordy's about 24 years old, uh, about 12, 13 years ago, I get the blessing uh, to meet. Tony, Linda, and Gordy. They were homeless on the streets of Austin, living in a cardboard box. During the winter time, he told me that when you really wanted to keep warm, you took your toothpaste and you squeezed it out over your body limbs and then wrapped yourself in newspaper in order to stay warm. These are these little things that you begin to learn uh, about what it takes uh, to survive outside with no resources. They were introduced to me because at that time we were buying gently used recreational vehicles and lifting people up off the streets into privately owned RV parks. And they were our second uh, folks uh, to do that too. And it was beautiful to watch this because the contrast between uh, being a former gang member looking at this and then stereotyping it as being that, yet deep inside of his heart uh, was this fatherly figure that took in and began to raise 
a child that would never ever exceed a seven-year-old mentality. Gordy and I became uh, really good friends. Um, I get the blessing to drive uh, a mobile Lowe's and Fishes truck. It's branded. It's got all the logos uh, on it as uh, part of my uh, corporate uh, compensation with mobile Lowe's and Fishes. And Gordy uh, began to believe in his mind that those were his trucks. And I would drive up uh, to their home in one of the RV parks, and he would always go, Alan, when are you going to let me have that truck? And then he began to believe that uh, he was the owner of Mobile Loaves and Fishes. And so we played this game all the time. And one time he was telling somebody that uh, uh, he wanted a job at Mobile Loaves and Fishes. And we would ask Gordy, what do you want to do? And he says, I want to do what you do. And I go, well, what is that? And he got up and he pointed to like a blackboard. He says, I can point like you do. <laughs> Gordy wanted to learn to drive, and I, uh, I always affirmed that one of these days I was going to teach him to drive. And that was not true. Uh, he didn't have the capacity uh, to drive. Uh, there was no way that I was ever going to be able to do that, but we had this dialogue going back and forth for years and years and years. Uh, Gordy frequently suffered grand mal seizures that would absolutely drop him to the ground. His face was scarred uh, with multiple falls where his face would be cut open, transported to the hospital, sutured up. And um, a couple of years ago, he had one of these grand mal seizures uh, while he was taking a bath. Fell down in the bathtub and drowned. And it was a devastating uh, for us. It was devastating because this human being was part of our family. His mom and dad, his street mom and dad, were part of our family. Gordy was cremated and uh, somehow uh, I was asked uh, to pick up Tony and Linda and travel to the funeral home to pick up the ashes. That was a pretty rare uh, thing. Somebody else within the organization would have normally uh, done that, but it ended up becoming a providential blessing for me. We walk inside this uh, funeral home and the uh, funeral director hands the urn over to Linda and the, the guttural emotion that began to pour uh, out of this street mom was unbelievable just shaking and we get out to the car and Tony is sitting in the front seat and I'm driving at this point Tony had already lost a leg to di diabetes and he's got the urn sitting on his lap and I'm about to back out he looks at me and he goes Mr. Allen I go what Tom he said would you let Gordy drive and he picks up this urn and sets it on top of my lap and I'm backing out, and I'm driving back to the village here with this urn sitting on my lap. And we're crying, deep emotional crying, mixed with unbelievable joyful laughter at what's happening here 
And all of this happening from somebody that you could look at and stereotype as just being a worthless piece of shit gang member that has no value in life. And it was an extraordinary, one of the many extraordinary lessons that I've been blessed with over the course of this journey with Mobileos and Fishes. This is a product of what can happen when creativity collides with vision. But what is vision? What is creativity? What does that mean uh, in the context of the kind of things that you and I can do in this world? One of my favorite serendipitous stories is about post-it notes, of all things, developed by the 3M company, who had their scientists on top of attempting to develop a very powerful aircraft-capable adhesive, something that was going to hold things together unlike anything on the planet that could fly rocket ships through the air. And they came up with post-it notes. <laughs> and I can see these guys in there stirring over the fire in their pot, you know, the mixture, trying to come up with this powerful stuff, and all they came up with was ticky-tacky type stuff. But you know, they threw themselves into the laboratory and began to start something. They had an idea. The idea that we had here, the mustard seed of an idea, that is so far from visionary, it's incredible. And the mustard seed of, a, of an idea was, could we go out and purchase one gently used fifth wheel RV and lift one human being up off the streets into a privately owned RV park? Just one. That's all it started with was one human being. Love, 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 love. Stir in the pot. We thought this was awesome. $5,000, by the way, for that first RV. That gentleman still owns that RV. Then we went out and bought the second one. That's the one that we put Tony and Linda in. And then we bought a third one. And then we had this brilliant visionary idea that we could build an RV park. Do you know how many RV parks are in the United States? About 20,000. Not creative, not unique. What we discovered inside these RV parks, though, was something very interesting. Especially when my children were young and we were traveling around the United States on our vacations. There's an inherent sense of community in these recreational RV parks. I don't know what it is about it. I remember being in one uh, back in the mid-1990s, and this million-dollar Prevost, these are the ones that the rock stars and the country stars all ride around the country in. Million bucks, man. That's about the lowest price you can buy a Prevost. Pulls into a KOA, backs into a spot, and I'm admiring that because I'm thinking, hey, someday I'd like a million-dollar RV. <laughs> That was back when I was a, a real estate developer before Mobile O's and Fishes. And then this family comes in with kind of a, a ticky-tacky SUV, kind of halfway leaning, pulling a $12,000 Jayco camper. And they pull into the lot right next to the million-dollar 
provost. And what happens? Both families come out. They start hanging with each other. They're grilling burgers. They're playing. They're going to the movie night. You know, they're going to the little volleyball court thing at the uh, deal. And there was no discernment that one was rich and one was less rich. It was just people in a common place having an awesome time, not recognizing that this one's in a $12,000 thing and this one's in a million-dollar deal. It was a mustard seed of an idea. And we began to brainstorm building this RV park on steroids. I love going back and reading the original business plan. Part of it said, uh, wouldn't it be awesome if we had gardens in everybody's yard? You know, that way they could grow uh, some of their own food. Just a stupid little idea. And then one day I find myself at a Chick-fil-A, and I never go to Chick-fil-A's, it's very rare, and I end up meeting this guy there named uh, Stephen Hebert. And he loves farming. Is that a clap? Oh, there we go. <laughs> and uh, he jumps in. And when you walk around this property today, you're going to see the most awesome, the most beautiful urban farm in all of Austin, Texas. It's unbelievable what we're doing out here. From a mustard seed of an idea, producing the highest quality food that can be produced on the planet, organic, heirloom quality, free-range chicken eggs, goat's milk, honeybees, all on this farm that's free to everybody that lives in this community. That's what can happen when creativity collides with the mustard seed of an idea. That's all you have to bring to the table is the mustard seed, but you have to bring to the table the willingness to allow many, many people to come in and nourish that. Here we are building an RV park on steroids to lift chronically homeless men and women up off the streets, and we're talking the men and women that you see standing on all of our street corners in our cities. People that most would consider the most despised and outcast in our community, the ones that we happen to want, that we love the absolute most. And then somebody comes to you and says, uh, hey, wouldn't it be awesome if we built an outdoor movie theater and a 500-seat amphitheater with a bed and breakfast that's got awesome teepees and microhomes as part of that. And you're looking at them and going, are you stupid? <laughs> no. Here we are. This is what happens. Yeah. Nobody would think of this. This is what happens when creativity, when you allow creativity to collide with a mustard seed of a vision. If you walk down on the other side of the property, and, uh, and in that blue building, by the way, is our community market, and you can go inside that community market, and you're going to see some of the most awesome, creative things manufactured and created by people 
that we as humanity want to discard and kick to the corners and to the fringe of our society. We have blacksmithing products in there. Who would put a blacksmithing uh, forge in a wood shop in the middle of an RV park meant to lift the chronically homeless up off the streets? Somebody had to come to that table with that nourishment to throw onto the mustard seed of an idea of lifting human beings up off the streets. Now we have this awesome forge. We had the most exciting blacksmithing competition in all of North America happening on this property. Last April and again this next April, there will be 1,800 people out here watching 24 of the most gifted blacksmiths from all around the world building some of the most creative things that you ever uh, thought could be built. But you have to open the door to that possibility. You're here. The creatives are sitting here with ideas, simple ideas. How do we take those simple ideas and maybe explode them into a movement? That's what we believe has happened here is we're exploding this into a movement. What happens when you build an RV park on steroids, or you're trying to, and you want to have some tents and some cabins and stuff for people to live in, and then suddenly the American Institute of Architects, Austin Chapter, comes to you, and they say, we want to open up and initiate a design contest around the world for people to design tiny homes that people could live in, you know? And that's exactly what happened. Tinyvictories.org, right here in Austin, Texas, there were 65 submissions. When you walk around the property through the microhome area, you today are going to be blown away. If you've been watching the, uh, uh, the tiny house movement on the DIY channels and stuff like that, uh, you're gonna be blown away. They ought to be out here looking at what we're doing because we have the greatest designs on the planet. And when our men and women come into the community, they get to walk around like you and I get to walk around and make choices about where they're going to live. And there's about a dozen and a half different designs on this property. This is what happens when creativity collides with the mustard seed of an idea. Many of my friends that are on the streets and let me tell you, we really believe that the single greatest cause to homelessness is simply a profound, catastrophic loss of family. It's not drug addictions or mental health issues or affordable housing or living wages. As important as those issues are as issues of justice in our society, something's happened to the fundamental uh, breakdown of the family unit. Uh, where, because everybody in here has our crazy Uncle Louis. Yeah, there we go. My mom was mine, profoundly mentally ill. Institutionalized for a year for the first time when I was four years old. I have two older brothers and a younger brother that was one at the time. Subjected to the most powerful psychotropic drugs ever invented by man in the 1950s and 60s subjected to electric shock 
uh, therapy that when you see videotapes of that kind of deal will absolutely take you to your knees. You can't believe that that kind of stuff happens. But she had something going for her that a lot of our friends and neighbors that live on the streets don't have. And she had a mom and a dad that really cared for her. She didn't have a husband that cared for her. He bailed out on us. But her mom and dad cared about her and nourished her and fought my father also that he would not strip my mom of her maternal rights of her four sons. Our friends and neighbors that are on the street that battle those similar issues don't have that capability. But one thing that I've discovered amongst people that battle some of these extreme mental health problems is some of the most creative people that I've ever met on the planet. And if you walk inside that community market or you walk inside of our art house, you will see art, fine art, being created by some of the most gifted people that you have ever met. They're not going to go work at Walmart and McDonald's. How do we go in and mine that talent? That's what this place is all about. How do we rediscover their purpose in life and then empower that purpose in life? When you come out here for a movie night, we have a couple of hundred people out here. We're going to open up the Sweet Goodness trailer and the community grill. And the men and women that are working that are going to average selling products to you and I as we enjoy the entertainment of the evening. Over $30 an hour. They're not going to get 7 or 8 bucks an hour. 30 bucks an hour. We go in and mine. Many of them are gifted. When you see the panhandler on the street corner, sometimes... You're impressed by some of the giftedness of how they're communicating to us to extract and separate us from our money. We're all panhandlers in reality, right? Who's in sales here selling a product or a service? Panhandler, 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 panhandler. Yeah, yeah. I will save the homeless world for money. You know, we're all panhandling. We're all panhandling. You know that in the United States, you know that in Austin, Texas, it's now against the law to have a lemonade stand on the street corners. Do you know that you can't sell flowers out of a flower bucket on the street corner anymore? Do you know that you can't go down to the Sam's Club and buy a box of blow pops, prepackaged food item, manufactured in a health department certified factory somewhere, and walk around downtown and sell those? But that it's a First Amendment free speech right to panhandle? It is the only remaining bastion of entrepreneurialism left for people that live in extreme poverty. Totally true. It is laughable. We have to turn that dial. When you go into our art house or the operations building, you're going to see street treat carts and mobile vending uh, operations, and we're lobbying uh, our city and our county to just nuance these insidious regulations that force people into being beggars. Anybody been to Rome, Italy here? Yeah, awesome. Just got back about uh, two months ago. Um, probably ran into, the whole time I was there, a half a dozen, ten legitimate beggars, people laying on the street, most of them uh, very old, deformed, laying there begging. And I ran into 20 million people selling selfie sticks. <laughs> How many people have bought a selfie stick in Rome while they were there? Right? Oh, yeah, I saw a hand go up, and you were, you were, I should make you stand up, man. 
I'm just saying that they're working, man. They're out there and they're producing. And uh, when a sale, a transaction is made, it produces dignity both between uh, the people that are selling and the people that are uh, purchasing that item. Or the, the gratitude that I have when I'm thirsty after walking all over uh, Rome and there's a guy there selling me an ice-cold uh, bottle of water. These are things that are appreciated. Why can't we get that uh, here? But this is all about what happens when creativity will collide uh, with vision. I remember one time we had a model home park about two miles from here that we uh, created to model uh, this area because we couldn't communicate what we were doing on paper. Um, and one of my good friends and supporters came in and they said, hey, Alan, you need a medical clinic. And I got to tell you, man, uh, my heart sunk. I didn't want a stinking medical clinic. I'm not in the medical business. I'm a real estate guy. I just want to build an RV park on steroids. But uh, they had a lot of money, and, uh, and they were going to help out making this thing happen. And so we ended up building uh, an unbelievable medical clinic and the first ever medical clinic sitting inside of any community anywhere in the United States dedicated exclusively to serving the behavioral health and primary health needs of the chronically homeless. Period. Right over here. What, what is vision? Um, I can tell you that along this entire journey, uh, the clarity of vision only came years and years and years down the road when we were able to look back on the work of Mobile O's and Fishes and collectively talk about the work uh, that we have done and begin to understand uh, what our vision at Mobile O's and Fishes, what is that one singular statement that describes why we do what we do? Not the what and the how, but the why. I don't think it's possible to get that at the very beginning. I think you have to go down that, that journey, that serendipitous, providential journey, to begin to understand and get some di distance between uh, where we are today and that mustard seed of an idea uh, many moons ago. But we now know that our vision is that we empower communities into a lifestyle of service with the homeless. That's what we do. We don't feed people. We don't house people. We don't empower people into blacksmithing or art or timber frame construction or movie nights, what we do is we connect human to human, heart to heart, by empowering the entire community to come onto this property and do nothing but love, 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 love. People will come out here all the time and they go, Alan, how long are they going to live here? And this comes out of this fix and repair mentality that we have in this country as if you can be fixed and repaired. Everybody in here has a disability. Everybody in here is in relationships with other human beings. Everybody in here has conflicts with other human beings. 
and the things about you that piss your friends off the most, we can't fix you from that. <laughs> Amen? I've been married for 32 years to my best friend, life partner, mother of five children, lived in the same house for 32 years, a complete partner uh, in this ministry. Couldn't have done this without my wife of 32 years, Trisha Graham, but oh boy, sometimes, man. <laughs> what have we done here? You know, I'm on time to everything, and she's absolutely late to everything. Amen, team? Late every time? Yeah. No. Yeah. She's not here, so I can really pick on her. She's getting her allergy shots somewhere. So why? We empower communities into a lifestyle of service. You know why? Because you can't send those men and women off of the street corners. You can't send the boys and girls that are... Uh, in foster care and send them to some fix and repair place. They need to go to the love, 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 love place. That's where we get fixed and repaired. When we begin to understand that, you know, people really care for us in an extraordinary way. That's what happens when creativity uh, collides with vision. The what and the how is Simple stuff. It's a post-it note. You know? It's a food truck that goes out and feeds people. It's a community that houses people. It's a blacksmithing shop that can help uh, teach you how to make awesome uh, artistic stuff that people want to buy. It's an art house where we can come in and we can create stained glass and art products and leather uh, products. It's a place where you can have a movie theater you know, in a concession stand and a community grill. These are just places. These are places that don't have backyards or back doors, only front porches. You know, the front porch today of the average single-family home in the United States of America is about the size of an iPhone 6 Plus. <laughs> and the backyards are giant with eight-foot-tall privacy fences and swimming pools and sport courts. In barbecue pits what's happening to this place we have to reverse that in its entirety the single-family neighborhood the American dream by the way is sucking the life out of us Americans we have to figure out how we can change that paradigm by allowing creativity to collide with vision Now, I'm going to tell you, when we bought that first RV, we didn't have a clue what we were doing. And it took us 12 years to get from that point to where you're sitting right now. And it took uh, a monumental number of people to come in and nourish uh, that seed. And it's the same thing in your life. You have a mustard seed of an idea. And how do we empower people? There's no other organization in this town that has empowered the level of collaboration. At first, the idea uh, didn't go over well within our city, across the board. But as people began, as we began to gain traction, 
regardless of whether you hated us in the beginning, we welcome you back in at this time to come in and be one of the nourishers. We put and forgive anything that might have been said bad about uh, what, we, what we've accomplished. We've allowed lots of people to throw mud on the wall, ideas. Some of it slides down and just sloughs away, but some of it really sticks and is making a powerful impact this movement that's called Community First, this movement uh, that is resonating around the United States and internationally, this movement where people are flying all in uh, from around the United States. Just next week alone, we have 20 people coming from seven different cities to spend two and a half days in our bed and breakfast to learn about what we're doing. And then if I could do one little panhandling deal. Will you forgive me for panhandling right now? One little deal. We've written a book. The book is entitled Welcome Homeless with the word less crossed out. Published by the largest publisher in the world, HarperCollins, under their Thomas Nelson mark. It's the real deal. They came up underneath us a first time completely no-name author because they believe in the movement. The book is going to be released on March 7th, but it's available for pre-sale right now for under 10 bucks. And if you would go to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Walmart, all the book things, it's all there, Welcome Homeless, and spend a lousy 10 bucks, you're going to get an awesome book that tells stories like the Gordy Tony and Linda's story, but more importantly, you are going to help us move this movement in a ginormous uh, direction. Because we need your help. We need you to go back to your cities and your countries and share what it is that you're witnessing uh, today. And then the last panhandling thing is our little community market bodega is awesome in there. And it's right over there in the blue building, and it is open now for you guys to go in and check out some of the awesome products that, uh, that are here. And I want to tell you, I really appreciate y'all being here in Austin, Texas, on the Community First Village. It's been a blessing to be in front of you. God bless y'all. Thank y'all very much. Appreciate it. More from my conversation with Alan in a minute, but first, we have to take care of some business. And this week's episode is also made possible by Dropmark. I've been using Dropmark for about four years straight on projects local to global, so small businesses to global advertising campaigns. This is Sean O'Brien, design director and Dropmark user at advertising agency Mullen Lowe. He's here to tell us what Dropmark does. It's like a digital wall that you can pin stuff up on, so you can move from your inspiration mood board phase all the way through final completion and, and approval of assets with teams all over the country or all over the world in all different kinds of formats. So you can look at flat technology or you can look at, you know, motion and film. And you're basically tracking your work from start to finish. Right. It's like a time capsule, you know, like you get a really great archive of the creative process. And it completely eliminates the need for endless meetings. Yeah. If you're on the project and you're overseeing it, then you can just sort of jump in the pool, take a look, see the progress, add a few comments. The comments get emailed out to people and then you jump back out. 
it makes it more fluid. Plus, has anyone ever accomplished anything on a conference call? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a simple answer is no. Dropmark is the smart way to organize your bookmarks, files, and notes into visual collections. Use it on your own or with your creative team to gather inspiration, review designs, and plan your next big idea. Dropmark is all your stuff in one simple, visual, private place. To get a free month for your team, visit dropmark.com slash creative mornings. So the first thing I want to mention is I was I was taking a look at the photos of all the tiny homes and man they are they are crazy. Yeah, they are crazy. Yeah. It really makes you think about how much junk and excess we all tend to carry with us. It's just unnecessary. Yeah. No, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, one of our goals is when people come out there just like you're commenting now is for people to say I want to live here. And what's really interesting is that it's showcasing just how important a role design plays here. Um and you guys are are not only doing good but you're making it look good. Yeah, we really believe that architecture is equally as important for people that live in poverty as it is for people that have all the resources in the world. And so we wanted to create an environment that no matter what economic life, walk of life you are from, that the common denominator is, I, I would live here. I want to live here. Whereas we build most places for people in poverty or shelters, nobody wants to live there. And, and we say things like, you know, well, it's good enough for them. And we have a phrase that good enough ain't good enough. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I have to say that I really enjoyed your comparison on um, backyards. Yeah, it's true, isn't it? Isn't it crazy? Yeah, yeah. and, and the, American, the American dream is sucking the life out of us Americans. I think that really gets the message across. Yeah. <laughs> can you, can yeah. you talk about that one a little bit more? Yeah, you know, it's just it's a matter of this uh, consumer economy that we live in, and and, and this isn't an indictment on consumerism. Uh, you know, I love buying and shopping, and that's that's great. But in a lot of ways, all of this stuff has isolated us from each other because all of our entertainment or what we perceive as being entertainment could all be had in the confines of our bedrooms and our living rooms today. Whereas when I was growing up in the 50s and 60s and 70s, you, you, you just got out. You went to the community swimming pool to swim. You didn't go to your backyard. The backyard swimming pool was literally only available to people that had extraordinary uh, wealth. Right Today, uh, anybody can have that. The sport court, the barbecue pit. All of these things. We used to go to the park to cook meals uh, jointly with with friends uh, and family. Those kind of things just don't happen anymore. And so uh, we don't get the opportunity to interact with a broader society and see things. Uh, and then in most of our cities, we've zoned ourselves economically so that uh, the so-called abundant elites live over here, and then the other people live on this side of the tracks. Um, and it's separated not only people economically, but culturally, uh, color-wise. All of the things that are part of the marinade of who you and I are as Americans, and don't get me wrong, there's no better place than this country, in my opinion, but we got to get a handle on what it means to live in community. And people are afraid that they're locking their doors, you know, at night. That, that used to never happen. It's amazing to walk around our community of, of uh, formerly chronically homeless men and women, and most people keep their doors unlocked. 
Yeah, and that's how it should be. Yeah, it's refreshing. Yeah. And speaking of the residents, what is a typical day in the life for them? Many of them are getting up and a lot of them work on site. They're artists, they're blacksmiths, they're working on the farm. You know, when we have events out here, they'll be contracted to work events. A lot of them get up, get on the bus, go into town and uh, do the kind of normal things that a lot of people would do when they go into town, go grocery shopping, uh, whatever. A lot of our residents, uh, just by virtue of who they are, are, are on a disability income. So their their capability of holding an active job is, uh, is, is pretty limited. But uh, most of them are very purposeful. I just came from the art house a minute ago and Several people in there just creating art and chatting and having a good time. So, Alan, when this episode airs, your book, Welcome Homeless, yeah. will have been out for just over a month. Yeah. And I wanted to give you an opportunity here to talk a little bit more about that. I know you mentioned it in your talk, but if there was anything else you wanted to add. Well, I appreciate that, Matt. Uh, <clears throat> it's, it's really a movement of my relationship with a number of different individuals that culminates in a chapter of... Uh, if you're familiar with Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, one of the habits is to begin with the end in mind. And uh, Covey's principle is that, you know, look, you got to have a goal. You got to know where you're headed. So you got to begin with that. Well, my last chapter of the book is to end with the beginning in mind. And, and my book is oriented back to the book of Genesis, chapter 2, verse 15. Just after God creates the Garden of Eden, he then takes the man, settles him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate and care for it. Three important words. Humans need to be settled. We need to be working. We need to be purposeful. And we need to be caring about something outside of our own selves. And so the journey is a series of chapters of my relationships with different men and women that I've met along the way and have journeyed with, including Tony, Linda, and Gordy, um, that really has people looking at human beings that they normally would despise and outcast from our society and turning that 180 degrees for them to see the extraordinary value but it's up to us to go in and mine that value. And that's really the essence of the movement that we call Community First. It's recognizing the value of these human people and bringing dignity back into their lives so that they can bless us by caring for us, their environment, and other people. And how does the future look? What's the next phase? The future in Austin is we have 24 more acres right next door that we're in the middle of planning right now. And hopefully within the next couple of years, we'll, we'll break ground on that expansion. And that'll lift another 350 people up off the streets. It'll be shovel ready, so to speak, in the next couple of months. All it needs is bank account readiness. And that's about a $20 million piece. You know, I, I mean, we feel completely optimistic that what we've created is a movement. But we're not going to know that for a long time. This book is part of that movement. So it'll be interesting to see what's going to happen over the next year. It's it's an unknown, but it's one of those anticipatory unknowns yeah. uh, that's got us really excited here. 
Well, we all wish you luck with it. And there's one last thing before we let you go. It's a question that we ask at the end of every episode. If you went back 10 years and met yourself, what's one thing that you would share with him? Oh, boy. Um, I wish you would have gone longer back. But, uh, you know, I got to be honest with you, brother. I don't, uh, in that 10-year time frame, I don't... uh, uh, I don't have much in the way of do-overs nice. and I, I would probably look at the Alan Graham of 10 years ago and go, uh, thank you for following God's guidance because you did it to the best of your ability. If I was to go back 20 years though, uh, I would need quite a bit of admonishment for not being as good a listener to what God was calling me to do. Um, and so, um, I look back on the past 10, nearly 20 years and go, what an incredible journey, uh, I have been on. I've learned a tremendous amount. Um, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't change that journey. Uh, one, one iota on, on any aspect of my life. Wow. That's outstanding. I think that's that's definitely a first. No one's ever answered that question with uh, thank you. And it's really refreshing to hear. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us, Alan. Thanks. Appreciate it, man. By the way, Alan's book, Welcome Homeless, has been released, and they're currently scheduling book signings, and sales have been going well. If you like what we've been doing here and you want to help out the podcast, please head over to the iTunes podcasting page and leave us a rating or review. Thanks very much. Next week is our season three finale, and it's a very special talk by American philanthropist Maggie Doyne. I learned and really truly believe that if we see something and we want to make the world a better place, I was I was just 18, I was really young, but I believe that we can create the world that we want to live in just as we want to see it. Our thanks to Alan Graham and everyone at Creative Mornings. This episode was produced and edited by Esmateo with sound engineering, mixing, and original score by Devin C. Johnson at Little Library Studios in collaboration with Esmateo Music. This week's rooster comes courtesy of Haley in Brooklyn, New York. Follow us on Twitter at Creative Morning. Remember, it's singular, and use hashtag podcastcm when you tweet at us. For a complete archive of talks or just to get involved, go to creativemornings.com.